Digging in, we started digging in last week uh, into the uh, Jewish history. Uh, we got as far as the end of the Torah, the end of the Torah. And what's interesting about the Torah is that if you kind of you analyze the Torah and what it really talks about, you have Genesis, which is basically two thousand, running very quickly, two thousand years till we reach, uh, well, about two thousand years till we reach Abraham. We settle down with Abraham, we talk about him, we talk about his life, we talk about his experiences, we talk about a few episodes with Abraham. We move on to Isaac, we spend some time with Isaac and his relationship with his kids and all the events. We spend significant time with Jacob and Jacob's children. That's basically the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends when uh, the, the children of Jacob die, primarily Joseph. We have the next the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the last four books of the Torah, and those basically primarily deal with one man. And who's that? Moses. Moses. Moshe. And the books end when Moshe dies. The last event that happens in the Torah is the death of Moshe. So we could kind of say almost that the book of the, the books of the Torah are really kind of like the storyline of the biography of Moses, basically. Uh, if, you know, if the, if he's a, the central figure. And what we say about that is that Moses is kind of the model man. And Moses is, was someone who perfected himself. Moses was someone who's, who engaged in character development in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a degree, in a level unparalleled by anyone else. And the Torah is all about this idea of the, well, the word Torah means instruction. Instruction for what? Instruction for developing your character, perfecting who you are, becoming the greatest person you could possibly be. Hence, the book of the Torah is demonstrated, is manifested in character, in practice by Moses. Moses is the consummate leader of the Jewish people. He is the, uh, uh, the unrivaled or unparalleled prophet. We, I don't know if we mentioned this last week, but there's a, there's a difference between the prophecy of Moses and the prophecy of every other subsequent or previous uh, prophet. So the level of prophecy that Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Elijah or Elisha or Abraham, none of those things, it's a different nature, it's a different uh, uh, quality in the prophecy. Moses' prophecy was clear, was lucid, Moses was awake, there was no imagery, it was direct instructions. The Torah says that, uh, or the Midrash points out, says that all the, all the, prophets, all the other prophets use the term ko so says God. Moses says, Zahadavar, this is the item, this is the, this is the thing. Why? Because prophecy has to go through a certain filter for, with a prophet. If you're a prophet, right, you're going to get some sort of imagery, some sort of uh, experience, and you're going to have to filter that and try to glean the lesson. That's why the Talmud declares no two prophets speak with the same style. As opposed to Moses, Moses didn't get imagery, Moses didn't get inspiration, Moses got instructions, words, the way you would speak to your fellow, the Almighty speaks to him. And that's important because Moses is the one who's going to give us the Torah. So Moses is the greatest prophet. Moses is the, is the model man. Moses was someone who had to wear a mask, as it, as it says in the end of Exodus. He had to wear a mask because his face was just radiant like the sun. The face of Moses was the face of the sun. Moses, we all saw him as a prophet. The entire nation at the foot of Mount Sinai saw him grow up. He come, doesn't come back for 40 days. He goes back three times. He builds the tabernacle. He, he tells us, you know, he hits the rock and the water comes out of the rock. That's how we drink for 40 years. He tells us about the manna and the manna descends from heaven. He is the lifeline, basically, of the Jewish people. At the end of the book, he dies. He dies, he doesn't make it into Israel. So how old was he when he died? About 20. Yeah. 
about 20. In fact, the, in fact, we're told it's that he, well, Moses, the Torah itself says that Moses died on his birthday. A complete 120. We find that very often with, uh, with, the, with the great Jewish leaders is that they have an idea of completion. It's perfection. It's not like, uh, it's not skewed in any way. Why? Because he was allotted, kind of, so to speak, he was allotted 120 years and he maximized every one of them. And he didn't die early, uh, prematurely, for uh, a reason. It means he didn't do anything that would contribute to his early demise. So the Almighty allotted him 120 years, and, uh, and that's, he maximized it. And as opposed to, uh, you know, most mere mortals, we, uh, our sin contributes to our early demise. You find this even today. This is remar- it's remarkable. If you take a look at the great Torah scholars that have lived in the 20th century, 20th and 21st century, people that live today, they all live to 103, 104, 105. It's, it's insane. Like it's just, just, if you just make a map, a graph, uh, of the great Torah scholars, especially the ones living in Israel, they're fully functioning, they're delivering, delivering discourses to thousands of people, they're, they're, they're sought for, consul, uh, for, 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 for consultation by everyone in the world, and they're 104, 107. Still fully functioning. Like, it's mind-boggling, you know? Mm-hmm. At a time where, where most people, they like, retire. You know, you're 70, almost 73, right? You should live with me well, but, you know, you kind of have your, uh, the, the, the height of your life experience is kind of behind you, right? That's what we say, you know? You, you, the peak of your life is maybe your 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. That is sad. Well, I'm saying your productivity, your productivity. Well, I mean, once is all. Rahm Emanuel's brother once is all to die at 75. Oh, that's well, it's more efficient, I read right? That article, yes. Oh, oh, it's insane, God. crazy stuff. He's seen him on television. He, he wrote God. Obamacare. <laughs> this was in uh, Atlantic was Magazine. Abraham oh my God. Moses came along. Abraham was way before Moses. <laughs> That's what I thought. Abraham's before Moses. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That's all the book of Genesis. Right. Jacob's kids. Jacob's grandkids is uh, um, the forebears of Moses. Right. Mm-hmm. Moses, Amram, Yitzhar, Levi. Uh, um, Moses, right. So Moshe's great-grandfather was the son of, jo- of Jacob. And so his great-great-grandfather was Jacob. His great-great-great-grandfather was Isaac. And his great-great-great-great-grandfather would be Abraham. Abraham was it took a chaotic nation, if you will, if they going to call a nation, and welded them together. Well, Abraham actually technically didn't actually found a nation. Abraham is called he's not called a Jew. He's not called a, he's called a Hebrew or Ivri. The term Ivri also means from the other side. The idea being the Jew, the term for Hebrew uh, or Ivri is someone who is radically different from the other side, kind of the other side of town or the other side of the river, so to speak. He had a different perspective. Everything he's that, that's that's what we as we mentioned last week. Abraham's hallmark was the idea of thinking creatively and being driven and being motivated. And that's why we say, as descendants of Abraham, we we have this characteristic of being driven and of not not um, uh, settling for mediocrity. Uh, yes, right. So that's Abraham, uh, but that's not no, not yet a nation. We say that the Exodus and the Mount Sinai experience that formed us to be from a family, from a tribe into a nation. Okay. So we have all the instructions of the mitzvahs from the Torah. And we have Moses' death at the end of the Torah. Moses, before he dies, we might have mentioned this last week, writes the entire Torah 13 times. He hands one of them to each one of the tribes. And he has another one, 13th one, for safekeeping. That would be these scrolls would be the scrolls that would be used to copy all subsequent Torahs. Have to be written, copied from these scrolls and eventually from other scrolls. You know, there's a law that if you want to write a Torah scroll, you cannot write it from memory, you cannot write it from a chumash, you cannot write it from an audio book, you have to write it from an actual extant Torah. 
So every Torah that we have today was copied from a Torah, was copied from a Torah, that eventually was copied from the Torah scrolls that Moses gave to the Jewish people. Moses dies, they're about to enter, they're about to enter, I apologize there, they're about to enter Israel, and Moses dies. Who takes over? Joshua. Joshua is his student, his protege, and we say, that the, the Talmud says that the face of Moses is like the face of the sun, the face of Joshua is the face of the moon. Right? The sun reflects the moon. You look at the sun, you look at the moon, it kind of looks very similar to the sun in size, which is kind of remarkable, especially when you encounter the fact that the moon is 27,000 times smaller than the sun. But for us, it looks the same. They both illuminate, but one of them is a reflection of the other. So yes, Joshua illuminated. Joshua was a leader. Joshua gave direction, gave us guidance, and he was a reflection of his teacher. He studied from his teacher, but he wasn't quite like Moses. Either way, the Jewish people accepted him, and we have multiple times in the Torah where God instructs Moses to take Joshua and prepare him for leadership, to tell the people what when you hear from Joshua, it's as if you hear from me. And Moses wanted his kids to be, Moses wanted his own children to be uh, the future leaders. God says, no, your kids will not be the, the leader, and we know Judaism, and especially the Jewish leaderships, is a meritocracy. We don't. Um, besides, when we get to the term of uh, the, the idea of kings, we'll get to that a little later in the Davidic line. But it's a meritocracy, the spiritual leadership of the Jewish people. So Moses, yes, you're wonderful. You're the greatest man that ever lived. Your kids are fantastic, fantastic. But Joshua is the one who's going to be the, the leader. They enter Israel. Now, what does Israel look like? It's not called Israel. It's called Canaan. And Israel is occupied by seven tribes. I think that was all of them. I don't remember. The Torah tells us the names of all uh, seven tribes. And each of these tribes has different various city-states. The term city-state is an ancient kind of a form of government. We have kind of a city that's kind of uh, uh, autonomous in, its, in how it runs. And the Jewish people are about to enter a hotbed of... Uh, of different cultures, different nations, a hotbed of idolatry, and their conquest of Israel will not be super smooth. And in fact, for the next 400 years, the Jewish nation will have to be in constant combat and skirmish and struggle with these, with factions or variants of these uh, seven nations. Not only that, we're going to meet the group called the Philistines, or the Midian and the Midianites, these were uh, primarily in the coastal areas, and these were tribes that gave the Jewish people lots and lots and lots of trouble. So they enter Israel. How do they enter Israel? They enter Israel from the east. They cross the Jordan, right? They're on the footsteps of, of, of Israel, on the doorstep of Israel, on the east bank of the Jordan. They cross the Jordan. How do they cross the Jordan? So they put the Ark of the Covenant and the into the uh, into the into the into the river, and the river splits. And the Kohens walk in. It's all described in great detail. They bring in twelve stones, and then they 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 uh, after after they enter, they erect these monuments where they write the entire Torah in them. They built a they they build a. They build a, an altar. They have this um, incredible kind of like. Uh, uh, initiation 
on the Mount, uh, Mount Hargrizim and Har Evil, the Mount of Grizim and Evil, we have half the nation on one side and half the nation on the other side, and the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant and the Kohens in the middle, and they make these declarations, blessed is he who upholds the Torah, blessed is he who doesn't, you know, commit any of the uh, sexual sins, blessed is he who, etc., etc., 11, 11 blessings, 11, 11 curses, everyone answers amen. They're in Israel, they had their initiation, they made their proclamation, they put their stamp on the state of Israel, on the, the land of Israel, they, they, they built this monument that has the entire Torah in 70 languages. Now they begin 15 years of conquest of Israel. Where is all this part documented? Yes, so that's a good question. So we have the Jewish Bible, we'll get to how the Jewish Bible came to, uh, into being. We have the Jewish Bible and uh, the first of it, the first five books of the five books of the Torah. And there's a qualitative difference between the Torah and the rest of the books of the Bible. But there's 24 books in total with the books of the prophets. So like Joshua, send the book of Joshua. Okay, 39. Uh, no, maybe there'll be 39 books of the Talmud. No, no, the 39 that was of the Jewish Bible. It's called the Old Testament. Or, no, I know the Old Testament. Yes, 24 books, 24 books. It's only 24 books. There are 12 prophets. Uh, I believe there's 11 books of the prophets, and then uh, there would be um, eight books of the writings. But there's only 24 books of the Tanakh, that's for sure. One of them is called Treyasar, right? One of the books is called Treyasar, which is 12 smaller books, like the book of Amos and Avadya and Yonah. Yeah, those. So those are 12, 12 small ones, but that's all condensed into one book called 12. Minor prophets. Minor prophets, thank you. I'm not talking about the New yeah, okay, yeah. Judge. <laughs> oh, no. So where did, you, where did you read Sorry the Dov? Where did you get your information that there were 70 languages? Well, the Torah says. I don't remember. Well, the Torah Joshua. says that you write the entire Torah Be'er Hetev very super clearly. And you look at Rashi, Rashi brings the Midrash, it says they wrote in 70 languages. Yeah. Maybe also when they get to... Um, Deuteronomy, can they go to the land? There's a, like oasis with uh, there's twelve palm trees mm-hmm. and seventy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so they have seventy. Right, it comes from the we already have that from from Noah for the from this actually this week's parsha. We talked about the seventy uh, descendants and they formed the seventy nations. The term seventy is a very very popular term, a uh, very number, very 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 important number. Because it kind of the seventy the 70, 70 people came to Egypt and they correspond to the seventy nations and seventy languages and Pharaoh spoke all seventy languages but he didn't speak to, right besides for one etc cetera, etc cetera. seventy languages already he spoke one more than Pharaoh exactly mm-hmm. and he said hush hush don't tell anyone about that. <laughs> Uh, okay, so where were we? Oh, so um, so to the Torah. So we have the, the 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 five books of the Torah, and then the book of Joshua is the first book of the Judges. The book of the Torah is written by Moses. The book of Joshua is written by Joshua. We have the book of Samuel. We have the book of Kings. These terms that you heard, uh, Kings. Uh, the book of Judges. Very important books. And kind of goes in chronological order. Okay. And then we, that, that's basically what we know. Remember the first. The first, what we would call modern historian, the person who's trying to document and chronicle stories from an unbiased perspective, and we know that no one's really unbiased. This is something we can all agree upon. No one is truly unbiased, but even the idea, the concept of 
history, the way we view history is try to just give the unbiased picture of what happened uh, that only begins 2,500 years ago with Herodotus. So we don't really have any other sources, any other documentation aside from the, from the Jewish Bible. But we also we have a very good tradition. We were always very good at documenting, and organizing, and writing things down. Okay, now because you brought up the idea of the Torah and where these things are documented, it's very important to mention that if the Jewish people had not screwed up, this is what the Talmud statement of the Talmud: if the Jewish people had the Jewish people not sinned, all we would have is the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua. All the other books were written uh, in response to the needs of the generation. So if you have, let's say, the book of Ezekiel, the book of, excuse me, the book of uh, Isaiah, these are uh, books of prophets castigating Jewish people, as we know from David Askin's speech that he gave on Yom Kippur, that the role of the prophet is to kind of bring the Jewish people back to where they're supposed to be. And therefore, had the Jews not sinned, we wouldn't we wouldn't have a need for any of the books besides for the five books of the Torah, because that gives that's what that's what we that that is our that is Judaism. Judaism that's all the laws, all the six hundred thirteen mitzvahs, the mission, the, the 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 what it means to be Jewish is in the Torah, the Book of Joshua, because it has the description of conquest and giving up the land, which is important, because as we're going to mention now, we're going to be we're going to engage with uh, fifteen years of conquering as much as we can of the land of Israel. Known as the land of Canaan, and then we're going to spend the time allocating uh, the different uh, parts, uh, uh, parcels of land to the twelve tribes. The Jewish people identified. We mentioned this last week as, uh, with, with their tribe, with a tribal unit, and the land that you every every family got a, got a portion of the land based upon their tribe. So, like uh, we're. Um, what we would call the West Bank today is Judea and Samaria. It's called Judea and Samaria because that's what the tribe of Judah and tribe of, of Shimon was. The Ruvain was on the East Bank of Israel. Uh, Shimon uh, was, uh, as we mentioned, South. Levi, the tribe of Levi, didn't have one. Uh, Judah was also in, in the South. And a lot of them were up the North and um, further South and further West, etc. Why do you think um, it was called the land of milk and honey? What do you think is meant by that? Well, it, it's, it seems like it's just a wonderful land. It's, fertile land. It's, 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 it's fertile. It is uh, prosperous. It is, you know, it's super sweet. It's super, uh, it's a super positive for spiritual growth as well. Um, we have a great, there's a great story, great short little episode on the Talmud about one of the scholars who, immigrate, who emigrated to Israel and he prayed to forget all of his Torah. Great Torah scholar comes to Israel and says, oh, I want to forget all my, all my Torah. Why? Because I'm, now I'm coming to Israel. I'm studying the Torah of Israel, so to speak. And there's a great, uh, the, 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 there's a tremendously positive impact that the land has on the Torah study. I want to forget. I, I don't want to be, uh, I want to have unadulterated Israeli Torah, so to speak. So yes, so it, it means on a physical level to be prosperous, but also on a spiritual level, it's the land most con- conducive for spirituality. You know what? <laughs> well, it, it comes to the Torah. It's in the Torah. It just, it, it's almost, to me, it seems like it was, um, I don't even know how to say, but um, you're calling it the land of milk and honey, but yet they had to fight tooth and nail 
Yeah, and this is another great. This is this is another great theme. We mentioned this last week, but now we'll see this in earnest as we talk. We can as we progress today. When the Jewish people were in the wilderness, forty years, they have Moses. Okay, they have a direct line to God. Direct line. No, with the greatest prophet that ever lived. Mm-hmm. They have the clothing growing with them, the shoes growing with them. They have a uh, a, a climate-controlled atmosphere mm-hmm. with these clouds of glory. They have the pillar of fire at night. They have manna falling from heaven. They have uh, a meat descending from the ground. They have water from a rock. It's just an incredible, supernatural kind of way of existence. Mm-hmm. What were they doing all the time? You know, we're just playing Angry Birds the whole time. They were studying Torah the whole time. It's basically, this is the closest you get to utopia. Mm-hmm. So you, you have un, uh, un, un, unbridled spirituality without any need to worry about your physical, physical life. Mm-hmm. All that comes to an end. That's not what the Almighty wants. The Almighty wants us to have to struggle. It wants us to have, the Almighty wants us to have, to, uh, to, have to, to, to deal with the challenges of being a physical body that has physical needs and that has physical distractions. The challenge with that is, though, that None of those people that left Egypt stepped foot into. Well, none, none of the people that were over the age of twenty, more, more precisely, none of the adults that none left Egypt. None of the Egypt. adults that yes. left Egypt made it there. So that whole um, band of wisdom. Yes, didn't but go. but remember, it was it was, wisdom, it, it was dynamic. Was it was ongoing. It wasn't it wasn't just the people that, the adults that left Egypt. There was their kids. There was their children. Yeah. They Is were it, they were. It was an gen- entire generation, even more than a generation and a half people, of the people. The other people were prison mentality. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Did, the, uh, did not the women go? Into yeah, the women did as well because the women didn't sin and the uh, yeah, didn't the sin uh, with the golden calf mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, but what a, I think it, I. I don't know. I think I see a fascinating look at milk and honey as a fascinating metaphor for that process of growth mm-hmm. and taking the growth of the nation of Israel and comparing it to just regular human or animal growth mm-hmm. to some extent. Like the time they're in the desert, they're being protected, they're being completely provided for, they're being cared for, similar to a baby in the womb. You have a direct connection to God, there's this mm-hmm. umbilical cord like concept of nourishment and sustenance and sustainment and then they are going to have to be birthed into this and like birth is this real it's a huge change it's very shocking it's traumatic but it's the beginning of something new and so they've got this womb-like experience through the desert and then they're birthed you know they cross this this water into the new land and they're birthed through this time of you know trauma and transition and they go into a land of milk and honey and milk is such a symbol of nourishment and of life and there's still a level it's not the level of care and nourishment you get in the womb but you're still being cared for in a way that you will not be cared for once you've grown and so you've got this milk and this baby nourishment and this growth through like the child part of life and then they continue to face challenges they continue to grow and then by the time you're an adult you realize the sweetness of conquering and the sweetness of learning and that even though the challenges are no fun nothing worth having comes without work and so you can appreciate that honey and so I think there's a fascinating metaphor being presented there and then if you scale it back and you take it out of the you know the conceptual part and you look at it just from a more physical and agricultural standpoint you don't have milk and honey without greenness and fertility. 
and these are people who've spent like 40 years in a desert and just like a woman or an animal really won't lactate without proper nourishment and rest and care that land had those things it's a symbol that eventually once you fight through this you will get to a place unlike where you've been before that will have bees for honey you're not going to have honey without plants like you look at what's happening to bees now like there's an entire you know pleasant environment that has to be in place to have that fertilization and that agriculture and that whole world but it's interesting because that because that because that uh, example of childbirth of, of you know is actually the Torah Moses says that yeah. Moses mm-hmm. says Moses tells the, tells the people it's like you know I'm carrying you like birthing, a mother yeah. exactly and, 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 and that's not sustainable and that's not mm-hmm. what the Almighty wants the Almighty wants us to engage in the struggle so now you're in Israel, right? You prepared. This is, you know, this, you know, this is what you came for. Like everything else was an exhibition. This is real life. Yeah. What got me is Joshua. He goes into these towns and he kills all the cattle, all the horses, of course, all the people. And he's got a smoking ruin. Now, how does this get on? Okay. So let's let 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 let's, let's talk about the the, the contours. But first, I want to talk about we talk about Moses being the consummate leader. And the importance of leadership and centralized leadership in Judaism can never be un, uh, underestimated because we could really mark the progression, the ups and downs of the Jewish people with the status of their leadership. And when the leadership, centralized leadership, gets disbanded in the second century, chaos uh, ensues, basically. Mm-hmm. A spiritual chaos, yes, Lenny. All right, so you say centralized leadership. That's right. Okay. Now, central authority. Is this, yeah. is this central authority? Politically derived, spiritually derived. Usually, it's 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 all all three of them. It's political, social, but most most importantly, it's law. Because we have a very complex way of living as Jews, and if that gets interrupted or that gets lost, or that's if there's any mistakes, then we, we're living a an inauthentic Judaism. That's that's very dangerous. To so are we people. talking about so, a, hier- a hierarchy? Because they're okay. So let's see what we're talking about. So when Moses was around, we kind of had the best the best of, of all the worlds because we have Moses. Moses in the Book of Numbers establishes a group called the Sanhedrin. Right? Has everyone heard of the term Sanhedrin? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sanhedrin is basically the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, Isn't and this is people? it's seventy people mm-hmm. plus Moses, so it's seventy it's seventy one, and this group will endure for about fifteen hundred years. We have records of them all the way to the middle of the second century, when they disbanded. And if you know, you notice that the writing of the Mishnah. We'll get to that hopefully, or maybe today, or maybe not, or some other time. The writing of the Mishnah, which is a dramatic departure from Jewish tradition, because it's writing down the Oral Torah. And the Oral Torah is called oral for a reason, because it's best suited. It's a, it was designed to be oral, but it was had to be written down by necessity. Because the Sanhedrin disbanded, when the Sanhedrin disbanded, you no longer have that uh, that safety gap, or they say the protection, where if you have any doubt, you come to the Sanhedrin. Mm-hmm. Moses, in the Book of Numbers, eleven sixteen, establishes this group, a group of seventy uh, one of the greatest scholars, and they would go on for a long, long time. So that's what you have. You have this. Uh, uh, you have constantly. You're going to have this group, and their role is going to be expanded with the. Uh, end of prophecy at the year tw- the 2400 years ago so about the year 400 of the uh, before the common era we have prophecy being discontinued and therefore uh, once prophecy gets discontinued their role expands now uh, they were part of the leadership but we also have prophets and from the time of uh, Joshua till the time of the monarchy of Saul we have about 400 years 
And these 400 years are marked with, uh, like we said, uh, conflict with our neighbors, with these 70, uh, with these uh, seven tribes, these city-states, the Philistines. And the leadership is going to be the judges, which are prophets. So the names that we use, uh, familiar names like uh, Gidon, Samson, right? Samson, the great warrior, he was a prophet. Uh, he was he was one of the judges. Uh, Samuel, Devorah, everyone's favorite, uh, the feminist's favorite, because one of the, one of the leaders was a female. She was uh, a prophet, and she was a judge, and she judged the Jewish people. And She's you know, really interesting very interesting, mm-hmm. very interesting character, exactly. Um, and these are the people that are going to be the guidance of the Jewish people. And we have a united. Uh, Israel, we have a sovereign Israel to a certain extent, right? A, a plus or minus, right? You constantly you're going to have this, uh, these the skirmishes with the neighbors, but for the most part, you're going to have uh, you're going to have fairly, I guess we could still call it stable, but united Judaism. They have their ups and downs, they have their challenges, and the biggest challenge of them all is going to be where you ha- you're living amongst so many Gentiles and so many Gentile influences, right? There's always the risk of you becoming like them and becoming, losing, your, uh, uh, losing your distinctness as being, uh, as being a, the Jewish people with the Jewish way of life and not being influenced by your neighbors. Uh, the Jewish people don't have Jerusalem. They didn't capture Jerusalem for 400 years for 400 years until, until Dave will meet David. David captured Jerusalem. The capital of the Jewish people is in a city called Shiloh. Shiloh is actually not, not that far from, from, the, from where the Jews live. That's where they kind of established a kind of a mini temple. That's where they brought the, 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 the tabernacles and the sacrifices and they had the pilgrimage to, etc. But they don't fully capture all of Israel. All that is going to change when we meet someone by the name of David. But first... The last of the judges is a fellow by the name of Samuel. Samuel is a very remarkable, very pivotal character in Jewish life. Uh, he's going to be a prophet who is going to oversee a major transition. So we have this time period of, 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 of the judges. It has its it pluses and minuses. In fact, the last statement, uh, the last, the last um, verse in Judges is as follows. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in, in his eyes. It was a kind of time where they didn't have monarchy, so uh, they had spiritual leaders, but not political leaders. I guess the, the prophet was a political leader, but he wasn't the, uh, the unquestioned authority from the political perspective. And there was a certain degree of chaos as well, a certain, you know, maybe we can say a certain degree of anarchy, where people kind of did whatever they did. With David. There's a lot of uh, bad episodes, um, like the story of Pelegish Begiva, this this uh, Google it. It's really probably one of the worst episodes in, in Jewish uh, Jewish life. Uh, and I felt I know Pelagish <laughs> Begiva. You'll never remember how to spell it. Pelagish Begiva. Well, I'll tell you guys a story. Uh, so well, there was this guy who was married to a few women, and one of them was raped, and then she was left out to die, and then she died, and it was outrage, and they took her, and they cut her body up into oh, 12 different parts, and the mailed it to all the yeah. tribes, they they caused a, 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 a yes, they caused basically an outrage, yeah. and there was a civil war. And they slaughter the entire, almost the entire tribe of Benjamin because they were the, the ones who were responsible for it. Yeah. They left only 400 people because they didn't want to decimate the entire tribe. Pretty bad episode. So yes, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Right. What, sorry? They didn't leave no women. 
Um, I did that. I don't remember the exact, all the details. Didn't leave all the women. Yes, yeah, so I think left four hundred men. That's uh, pretty bad episode. You know, it's kind of civil war is, re- is really bad. So what do we have? We have the establishment of a monarchy. Now, remember, we we have the Sanhedrin. Their role is not as big as it's going to be, but we do have prophets. And the the cool thing about having a prophet is that you kind of went in for any life question. So. Every person, every individual at some point of life says, well, what should I go? What should I get? Should I become an accountant or a lawyer or an engineer or something like that? Or what do I do with my life? It's a question everyone has to face today, but even then. And today, you kind of have to figure it out on your own. Back in the day, you went to the prophet. Right? You, you're, you lost your iPhone. Where do you, what do you do? You go to the prophet. The prophet the, the, he's the, the, that's the definition of the prophet. It's a great asset for the community. You have a prophet. And this is remarkable because if there's any doubt in, in Jewish law, there's any discrepancy? There's any? There's any problem? There's any um, uh, disagreement amongst different authorities as to the exact uh, the, um, um, application of Jewish law? You go to the prophet. So, are you saying then that the monarchy was composed of prophets? No, let's get to the monarchy. All right. There's prophets. What did the writers say that they were kind of warlords as well? No, no, absolutely no, not. No, no. I say, so we'll, we'll get to the political. No, no. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah, I'm saying, uh, jo- uh, to, to varying degrees, they, they, yes, I'm saying, like, Joshua was the middle, military leader as well. But I guess we could say they had some sort they were the leaders, uh, but they were kind of leaders from a spiritual perspective only. And that oftentimes will lend to, to be uh, military leaders as well. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Well, and, I mean, at that point in time, if, I, if Israel was functioning in an ideal fashion, there would not have been much difference between what Israel was doing spiritually and what they were doing politically. And yeah, because mili- they were I mean, under... Theoretically, that should all go mm-hmm. together because Torah has rules for all of that. That's and right. So, I mean... And the That's problem, right. And we the know, we know that, uh, that the Sanhedrin has to be consulted before you engage in any war. So the, like, the Sanhedrin and the Supreme Court have to be consulted before you engage in any war. Obviously, you would have to have the prophet sign, sign off on that as well. So there was a fellow by the name of Saul, right? Saul was the first king of Israel, the united Israel. Saul was a scholar of scholars. Saul was a warrior of warriors. Saul towered above all men. Saul was what you would say is like the perfect specimen to be a king. And he, uh, actually, funny story, he was looking for his donkey. So when when you don't have your iPhone, you go to the prophet. When you don't have your donkey, you go to the prophet as well. So you went to the prophet Samuel, and it says to him, Samuel, I'm looking for my donkey. He says, oh, your donkey's right over here. And by the way, you're the king of Israel. And the Torah already gives us guidelines for what it means to be a king, what there's special rules for a king. Yeah, there's three mitzvahs in the Torah that only a king uh, that apply only to a king. What are those three mitzvahs? Number one, a king may not have too many horses. Because the horses came from Egypt, and the king may uh, uh, may want to get more horses and bring the Jewish people back to Egypt. Jews not allowed to go back to Egypt. Number two, the king shouldn't have too much money, right? Because the king, the king has to be a spiritual guy, just be the heart of the people, heart of the nation. And if he's too focused on his money and his and, and the materialism, he'll uh, he'll shy away from his real responsibilities. And lastly, a king may not have too many wives. Why? Because the wives would be influ- would influence uh, uh, or could potentially influence him uh, to deviate away from the true path. Mm-hmm. 
these are the three mitzvahs given only to kings. Uh, we'll see a little bit later on when we meet the third king of Israel, the name of by the name of Solomon. He's going to have a thousand wives, mm-hmm. more precisely, oh. seven hundred wives yeah. and three hundred concubines. So yes, no, and yes, and and caused the problem. But can you imagine one man was a thousand women? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I have a question. So what, when did having one wife? I thought that that was something in the Torah, but obviously not. No, uh, polygamy in Judaism was only uh, is fairly recent, about a thousand years old, where it's where, where it was prohibited. So yes, it's, it's considered an edict, but by strict Torah law, a man can have as many wives as he as he as he, as he wants, provided that they that they're all on board and that he can provide for all of them emotionally, physically, etc. Theoretically, the if it would be possible. The Mormon thing was uh, a political thing. Why they stopped polygamy? The Utah, exactly. Yeah. I know for right. you for Utah to be admitted in the, into the union, one of the the very strict anti polygamy laws. That's right. Um, Yes. One of those towns. I've been to Colorado City, Arizona, where they have 55,000 polygamists. Yes, yeah, so it's very, very interesting, actually, what happened um, with a fellow by the name of Rabbeinu Gershom. He was one of the earliest of the Rishonim, and he had, he had more than one wife, and one of them tried to kill him. It was a whole disaster of a story. And he said, this is just, it's, it's too much for people today, and people of today's stature are, uh, are not uh, capable of uh, managing all this, and therefore... He said no longer and hasn't been uh, hasn't been a, a an issue for that more than a thousand years. Uh, women cannot have more than one husband. Uh, only men can have more than one wife, and the reason behind that is very simple, because if a woman has more than one husband, we don't know who the father is. So uh, you have uh, you know if you have m- multiple husbands, you have progeny. Uh, you don't know who the who the father is supposed to. If a man has multiple wives, we could still know. Uh, who the father uh, uh, the father is? Mama's baby, daddy's baby. Huh? So we just ask more general question. So who has the authority to change the Torah and what it says? Yes. As so a, um, God. I mean. Yes. So 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 that's a great question. Um, the the answer to that is that the Torah itself gives quote unquote the rabbis very broad authority to make sweeping changes. More specific, the, specifically, it's given to the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin, they themselves, they have uh, incredible power. Torah says it's in But it says when there's any doubt, ben dam ladam between blood and blood, ben din ladin, you go to the Sanhedrin and they and, and, and they can say that. So they. There's a difference between interpretation of ambiguity. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's total change. That that. The Torah doesn't say you must have more than one wife. Like I think if the Torah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a mitzvah. They're not they're not abolishing a mitzvah, wife, right? Exactly. And they're not going to change that. But if it's not been addressed and happens to have been a cultural practice, then there's more room to change it. Well, yes, no? yes, uh, yes, and no. Well, we have Sorry. rabbinic law. With, <laughs> with rabbinic law, we have two kinds of rabbinic law. There's rabbinic mitzvahs. There's only seven of those. Very very narrow, like lighting candles on Shabbat, lighting mm-hmm. candles for Hanukkah. There's, there's only seven seven mitzvahs that can get you the list if you want after, um, mm-hmm. afterwards. Only seven mitzvahs that originate from the rabbis, as they're granted the, the authority to do so by Torah. But what we have when we talk about rabbinic law, primarily we, we mean what's called rabbinic um, fences, term mm-hmm. fences. Mm-hmm. That's where uh, the fence around the Torah comes. 
Exactly. The Torah itself says, do provide a fence around the Torah, which is uh, like just I, the example that I always give is when you have a kid who's taking a bobby pin and sticking it into the outlet, you put a cover on the outlet, right? Because you don't want him to, right? You, why are you putting the cover on the outlet? Because you don't, it's a protection. It's a fence protection that way he, he, so he doesn't electrocute himself. Similarly, the rabbis say, hey, you, the Torah says don't write on Shabbat. Well, don't handle a pen either. Right? It's, it's kind of take a step back away from the actual sin and, uh, and, uh, and you know, just provide another layer of protection to that you shouldn't be any confusion whatsoever. Well, and they cannot abolish any laws, of course. Um, uh, that's that's another thing we have. Let's say in the 17th century, a fellow named Shabtai Tzvi, Tzvi, he was a false messiah. One of the things that he did, one of the things that he did was he tried to permit laws. And the Torah itself says multiple times you cannot add or subtract any laws. Right? Not supposed to change a jot or a tittle. Yeah, you can't change anything. Um, it says, uh, 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 to my count, at least three times it says. Um, can't add up or subtract law, but he was adding and subtracting laws left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin has they have the right to make mitzvahs, rabbinic mitzvahs that are binding to everyone because they're central, like we mentioned, the term central leadership, mm-hmm. uh, binding to everyone, but also to to make rabbinic edicts as well or protections, measures against uh, to prevent the. Uh, uh, encroachment on the actual Torah law. So like the example that we say is that the, the law of Mutsan on Shabbos, which is don't handle something that is a tool that can only be used for one purpose and the purpose of doing your prohibited act on Shabbat. If it's something that has multiple uses, you may handle that on Shabbat. But if there's an item, a vessel, a tool that has only one usage and that is prohibited on Shabbat, uh, you may not handle that. And it's rabbinic law, but it's not its actual mitzvah, rather it's a protection to an existing Torah-Idic mitzvah. So if this guy comes along and uh, decides that he's going to make changes, but he ends up getting other people who will go along with him, so that means that there has to be some other authority that will... So yes, this brings us back to the Rabbeinu Gershom. The Sanhedrin, they alone have that authority to make rabbinic edicts and to make rabbinic laws. The fellow who banned polygamy, he was not... He was not a member of the Sanhedrin because Sanhedrin had already been disbanded uh, for hundreds of years before that. So that's why, technically, it doesn't really have... Um, uh, it, well, he was a leader of, of Ashkenazi Jewry, and as recently as this century, <coughs> we have Sephardic Jews that still engage in polygamy because kind of he was like a leader of the, of the Ashkenazi, uh, Ashkenazi community, and therefore his word carried a lot of weight in the Ashkenazi community, uh, and therefore... Uh, the practice or the adoption of this restriction was uh, in the Ashkenazi community uh, completely accepted. Uh, a few other things that he did, he uh, he also made that uh, divorce can only happen if there is mutual consent. Um, from uh, from a Torah perspective, uh, the man is the one who's responsible to decide whether or not it's the time for uh, for um, you know he has a responsibility of making the determination as to the uh, the viability of a marriage. So I guess from strict Torah, Torah law, a man can say, I'm giving a divorce, and just give the woman the divorce, and she's divorced. As opposed to uh, post rabbinic Gershom, so the past thousand years, that is no longer true. There has to be mutual consent. And the last law that he did, Rabbeinu Gershom. Gershom. 
uh, very, very uh, impactful, influential, about the year 1000, so about a thousand years ago. And the last thing that he did was that you're not allowed to open up other people's mail. Interesting. So it doesn't really... Two marriage-related, one about, about polygamy. It means he understood that men already at his time don't have the capacity uh, to have multiple wives and still do it the way they're supposed to do it. And they don't have, they don't have the same capacity that Torah grants them or the responsibility to kind of be, uh, be the one who's going to determine the viability of the marriage. It has to be uh, a mutual consent. You're saying in the Sephardic community, in some places today? Well, I don't know about today anymore, but oh, yes. for sure in the 19th century, yes. Okay. In the kibbutz, they had them. They would bring them over, and uh, the guy would come over with his wives, so they'd say, well, we got to go out there and dig up the garden out there, so he'd send his wives out. So the, the yeah, it's not a good thing. Yes, or maybe. Most Christians quite an outlier. Yes, yes. So, uh, but... Even a thousand years ago, it became clear that it's not, it's not really the, the best. And, you know, David, look at David. David had six wives. He was able to juggle them, you know. Is that just so they produce more offspring? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. So you have a king, and the king has to build alliances. So it's kind of like a political ploy as well. You build alliances by intermarrying with other, with royalty. Um... You know, it's it was a very common uh, ancient method of, of alliance building. Yeah. And Solomon, he like we said, he had seven hundred wives. He was a he was a a very um, a very busy guy, but also uh, you know. <laughs> and he he claimed that he had the capacity to do it, but we see that his wives led him astray. The Torah even spells it out. The, to- the Bible spells it out clearly, but routines that says that yes, he thought he had the capacity to handle them, and they wouldn't influence them, but they ultimately did. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he, he had to satisfy these wives, uh, Solomon did, because of uh, their pagan ancestry when he made a, a deal with uh, with the other king over there about marriage. Yes, yeah, so they might have converted, but maybe might have not have been a, a sincere conversion, etc. He was he was uh, given uh, acquiescence to their practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And observe. Uh, and it was his downfall. Guy or something. Yeah, but I'm saying uh, his uh, his downfall wasn't quite as dramatic as let's say the downfall of Saul. So let's talk about Saul. So Saul is the first king of Israel. Saul is what you would say is the model king, and his reign lasts for a grand total of two years. That's it. That's it. Now, what happens? How are ancient kings uh, anointed? Everyone here heard the term Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Saul is called Mashiach. David is called Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Kings are called Mashiach because the term Mashiach means anointed one. The way they used to inaugurate a king, they would take oil, special oil, and pour it over his head. Mm-hmm. And that the word for anointed one is Mashuach or Mashiach in, in Hebrew. That's why um, uh, later on, um, when the whole Christian thing came about, uh, the idea of Mashiach doesn't necessarily mean savior or anything like that. It means king. Uh, or Christos is the Greek word for anointed one. So it's important to know like where the term Christ or Mashiach come from. It comes from the, 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 the already in the Torah, the, in the Bible we talk about uh, Mashiach as well. Okay, so Saul was what you would call the model king, and we find this again and again in Jewish life, that what you perhaps would think is kind of the best leader, the model leader, the guy who's 
polished and charismatic and talented and capable and brilliant and uh, imposing stature is someone who's actually his you know, kingdom is kind of a tragedy. You know? And David, who was an afterthought in his family, his own family, said, uh, David, who's David? David was laughed at. His kids, you know, like, you know, they would take him and do like this to him with his red hair. That's what they would do to him, his brothers and his family. And he's considered the ultimate king. Uh, the quintessential king of Israel is, is, is David. So you see this again and again that we have, we mentioned this right last time, the leadership comes, doesn't, it's, it's exactly cookie cutter. The prophet Samuel. Samuel. Prophet Samuel anoints Saul. Saul becomes the king. Saul makes a critical error. Why? What was his critical error? He is instructed by Prophet Samuel to kill the nation of Amalek. Amalek is a nation that was tried to reign the Torah to destroy. Amalek is the anti-Jew. It's what we will call today Hitler. It's the idea of just pure, unadulterated evil. And uh, they had it. They were they were a tribe then. And Saul is instructed by Samuel, by the Almighty, go destroy Amalek, kill them, kill Agag, kill. Don't leave any remnant of them, men, women, children, livestock, everything. Destroy them all. And he makes two mistakes. Number one, he leaves the king alive, Agag, and he leaves the animal livestock alive as well. And his rationale is pretty simple. Why do we need to kill the livestock? But you got instruction by the prophet yeah. uh, don't overthink it. Mm-hmm. If the prophet tells you to do something, you do it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't he also allow conjugal visits? <clears throat> is that the king that did that? Allows conjugal visits? The, when he goes in and captures them instead of killing them? I don't remember that. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Now, Agag would later go, uh, he would reproduce, and his descendant is Haman, uh, the foe of the arch foe of the Jewish people. I would bet everything that I have that Hitler, too, is a descendant of. Uh, it's, it's pure evil. It's what it is. You know, so you say, how do you, how do you, how do you kill babies? Well, the Torah tells us to kill babies. How, how do you understand it? We don't understand it. But we have a living image, you know. If you uh, if you were able to dial it back to you know eighteen ninety two, and you have a little little baby Hitler, and you know what we know today, I think rational, reasonable, uh, good people would say that the right thing to do is to euthanize the baby, right? But it's just a baby. Well, it's Hitler, you know, and it's evil, and it's Amalek is the same thing. But you only know that through the benefit of perspective. That's true. That's true. But the Torah the Torah has a much broader perspective than we have, and the Torah tells us. Destroy a Amalek. Don't leave any remnant of them around because if you leave any remnant of them, they'll come back and they'll bite you. So what was the process by which you were supposed to kill them? War. War. Ancient war. Ancient warfare. And typically the Jews, as we were told in the Torah, we talked about this once over there, uh, in, in warfare, you know, when we have a goal in warfare, we don't believe in just uh, rape, pillage, and murder. For You know, we don't believe that. We, we try to uh, approach our objectives and accomplish our objectives peacefully. Uh, you know, if people surrender, we don't we don't just have a uh, senseless uh, slaughter. But there are exceptions. In the example of Amalek, uh, this is an exception. Now, remember, for us, it's, we we have instruction in the Torah. Not everything in the Torah do we understand. We have the humility to say, the Torah is instructing us to kill little babies. <gasps> we could say we don't understand it. Mm-hmm. We perhaps. That's true. 
we have to understand understand that intellectually, maybe, philosophically, maybe, emotionally, probably not. But we understand, and we can say, "Listen, this is a Torah instruction. We don't necessarily fully understand it, and that's a fine. That, that's 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 a, that's a, that's that's fine. You, you just say that. You, it, there's nothing wrong with that." Saul, uh, uh, Saul had made this mistake. What happens with the mistake? Uh, Samuel goes over to him and tells him, "You are no longer the king." Now, even though he was still operating as the king, even though the entire nation viewed him as the king, even though he was still <laughs> ruling, but in a spiritual sense, the idea of being the Jewish king had passed on from him to the next great leader, which is David. What happens with the story of David? So, Saul, so, so Samuel is told by the Almighty that this fellow by the name of Jesse, Yeshai, he well, has one of his... So Saul loses it because he doesn't follow the instructions. That's right. right. Okay. That's right. One of the seven sons of Yishai is going to be the next king. So he goes over to the family of Yishai and he says, this one, the most handsome one, the oldest one, the great scholar, wrong guy. That's the next one, wrong guy. One after another, he says, none of them are the king. And then says, Samuel. Samuel goes to the family of Yishai. He says, is there anyone else? Do you have any other sons? He says, oh yeah, there's one by the name of David, but he's a Nebuch. He's in the same Yiddish. He, he's a loser. He's in the back with his, with 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 the sheep. So he goes back and he sees this red flaming red hair, and flaming red hair. We know in Judaism we don't have a very good history with red hair. We have Esau, who is a, who is famously a redhead. The idea of red is 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 is, is that of blood, murder, and he's initially very uh, hesitant. And then he sees his eyes, and the eyes we know the eyes of Israel is the Sanhedrin, it's the guiding light. And Samuel understands that yes, David is a murderer, but he is a murderer who is going to murder uh, as per the instruction of the Sanhedrin. He takes the oil, he pours it over David's head, and from then on, in a spiritual sense, David is the king. However, Saul is still operating as, uh, as the king, and eventually, Saul realizes that David wants his kingdom, and what begins is kind of a mini-civil war between David and Saul. What happens? There's this great mighty warrior, Goliath, seven foot seven, a monster who was just destroying the Jewish people. It was a Philistine. The Jews always had problems with the Philistines. And David comes, little five foot six, redhead, and takes the little slingshot and kills him. And Saul is impressed, uh, but he's not, like, he doesn't, he's unfazed. And then he tells David, you know, he says, David, listen, I want to give you uh, my daughter Michal as uh, a wife. But first, as a condition, I want you to get me a hundred foreskins of dead Philistines that you killed. Okay? Give me a hundred foreskins. Right? And with the intention... Did know that David was anointed? Well, he knew, he knew it and he suspected okay. it and he was worried about it. So he came up with these creative methods trying to get David killed. Once David is out, then he knows that his kingdom is unchallenged. He sends David on this mission. David comes back with not 100, but 200 foreskins of dead Philistines. And from then on, David was really technically married to Michal. He didn't actually, Saul didn't give Michal his daughter to him, so she married someone else. But they didn't actually consummate their marriage because they knew that Michal, that Michal was really proper, was legitimately married to, uh, to David. Uh, Saul goes on this headhunting mission. He's like a man driven obsessed with trying to kill David. He chases him. David's in the, in the tent. Uh, David's in, in the cave. The famous story, David in the cave where, uh, where Saul is the, Saul and his army and his, uh, they're looking at Saul and Avner. They're looking for David. David hides in the cave. Uh, Saul has to go use the restroom. He goes to the cave. 
David cuts out a piece of his garment without Saul realizing, and then he goes out and says, look, I could have killed you, but I didn't. David gets stuck between the uh, the legs of Avner, and he's almost killed, but then this mosquito comes and bites Avner, and he unshuffles his legs, and he goes out. All these great stories that we read about in the book of Samuel, the book of Kings. Uh, primarily the book, uh, the book of Samuel. Uh, David has his allies. Uh, uh, foremost among them is the son of Saul, Jonathan. Uh, eventually, Saul is cornered in battle by the Philistines. Saul commits suicide. Really a tragic end to what could have been a great uh, story. Saul commits suicide, and then David assumes the leadership on, on rival. I'm sorry? Jonathan was also killed. Who? Jonathan. Jonathan. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. Jonathan also killed as well? Yeah, the same yes. battle, I think. That's why Saul Yes. Um, he was surrounded. Yeah. As a whole, there's a whole debate. We know that in Judaism, you're not allowed to commit suicide. Maimonides writes that someone commits suicide is a murderer. He's judged like a murderer. God treats him like a murderer. Suicide is, is, is a big time no-no. So there's a whole question as to the legitimacy of, of Saul's uh, actions and what gave him the right to do it and uh, according to some, it's because he was cornered and he was going to die anyhow, and therefore it's preferable to die uh, and not uh, to be uh, not to be tortured first. Others say it's because he knew that the morale of the Jewish people would uh, would be uh, would be broken if they saw their king who was beheaded and just paraded through. You know, either way, he committed suicide, and David assumed the leadership. And this begins probably the best stint or the best era of Jewish life kind of Jewish life in its best on, for the next eight years, 40 under the leadership of David and 40 under the leadership of his son, Solomon Shlomo HaMelech. What happened to the Philistines? Are there any left? Nah. It's, it's interesting because uh, the term Palestine was revived by the Romans. Mm-hmm. Right? The ancient Philistines of the coastal group, um, a seafaring group, are gone. Phoenicians. And uh, the uh, the I'm sorry. I was going to say someone I had read that that was currently Gaza. Yes, yes, coastal areas. Uh, The Romans, when they when they um, overran Israel, they destroyed the temple and they stamped out the Great Revolt in the uh, middle of the first century. They kicked all the Jews out of Israel, and they renamed it Palestine. So they revived that ancient name. And today we know the Palestinians are really Jordanians. They're not the same people as the Pelishtim that we talk about in the, in the, in the Bible. But that was kind of the name that the, the British also, uh, when the British had the British mandate over, over Palestine, they renamed it Palestine as well in, in homage to the ancient uh, Philistines. So David becomes the king. And David is going to be, like we said, the consummate uh, king. He's going to be someone who is going to, um, who is going to be the one to capture Jerusalem. So he's the one who is going to finally uh, uh, end the mission that began with Joshua of capturing Israel. He cap- he buys Jerusalem. He doesn't have. He doesn't. He doesn't. Well, he isn't able to build the temple, but he still captures Jerusalem. Uh, Solomon would go on to build a temple. He uh, he has a life of tremendous challenge. He has his his kids. Who um, one of his kids tries to kill him? Avshalom. He has his, <laughs> lots of it's uh, chaotic. He has a son. Who, he has basically has a son trying to overthrow him. 
Uh, imagine you're the king and your son is trying to uh, create a, uh, a coup to overthrow you. He has tremendous parenting, a lack of parenting skill. Uh, maybe. Uh, why would you say that? The trouble with those kids, I mean, my God, one of them was a rapist and still he does nothing. Uh, Who's the rapist? It's not Absalom, it's the other one. He's a whole bunch of kids. A whole bunch of mm-hmm. kids. He has the episode with yeah. David and Bathsheba, mm-hmm. which is uh, very important to not read it in the uh, in the simplistic way. In fact, the Torah, uh, the Talmud says that anyone who said that David sinned is not anything other than, a, than mistaken. How so? How so? Let me explain. Yeah. Um, because everyone's familiar with the basic uh, broad strokes of the story. The story is that he sees this, this lady and she's bathing and he, he covets her and he chases yeah. her and he finds out that her husband uh, is mm-hmm. is exactly Uriachiti and he sends him to the front lines and he dies and he marries her. That's the basic broad strokes of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's important to note is that first, David for sure did not commit any prohibited act of any sort. How so? Well, she, she, who says she was married? We know that David, all his soldiers that went out to battle gave, uh, gave uh, letters of divorce to their wives in case there was any doubt as to what happened to them uh, in battle. <coughs> they didn't come back. They didn't come back. Additionally, Nathan uh, comes to David and says that he's Yes, yes. okay, okay. That child? But remember, yes. but, but, yeah. rem- but remember, David's sin on David's level uh, perhaps for us would be a mitzvah. This is an important distinction for Not us. The greatest people, the greatest. This is this is a, a concept we see all over uh, Jewish mm-hmm. philosophy. Mm-hmm. For the great people, they're judged on a much higher level, so to speak. A much more, you know, they have a much, uh, uh, much stricter enforcement of the law. So what mm-hmm. um, when Moses hits the rock, right? Mm-hmm. He causes a great. There's he causes punishment for a small act. Exactly. Right. And in fact, what does God say to him? That he's you, not going to go to the promised land. Well, what does God tell him before that? He should just say to As a result rock. of what? As a result, because Let you don't... Be- as credit for bringing forth the water. No, that's not, that's not what happens. Disobedience and lack of faith. He dis- exactly. God tells yeah. him, you you don't have faith. Can you imagine yeah. telling Moses, Moses doesn't have faith? Yeah. But you know, you because gotta... Moses on his level, on his level is judging a much... Imagine the miracle that you do in front of right. everyone. Everyone's all thirsty. Yeah. You go, you hit a rock and there's water for everyone. Yeah. Is that a miracle? Is that sanctification of God's name? Absolutely. Yeah. For Moses to consider a sin, a sin of what degree? A sin of, of rejection of God. Right. Because Moses on his level is, is, is you know, there's a, uh, there, you know, there's a, he's treated uh, much more stringently. But he knew God face to face. He was supposed, he to, he was supposed to talk to the so rock. Yes. The, greater, the lack of faith is a greater betrayal because of the relationship they had. Uh, and, the stat- totally and the status. Get. And the status. I'm fine with that. What I'm not following is if it's recorded in the Torah that God's prophet comes to David and says, mm-hmm. you sinned and you will suffer for this, how are you going to turn around and say it wasn't a sin? Because God's prophet went to him because and said, it, you Okay, sin. I agree it was a sin, but it was a sin for David. Well, yeah. On a I mean, that's technical level, this is what the Talmud says. You guys are arguing against me. This is what the Talmud says. Yeah. The Talmud says that if you read it crudely, you'll mistakenly think that David committed a very crude sin. Was Nathan a yeah. prophet or Yes, not? of course Nathan well, the no, prophet came to him. walk with me. Nathan is a prophet. Yes, we agree. Okay? Yeah. He is a prophet who hears from God and is correct. Absolutely. Does he go to David? Yes. And he says, David sinned. That's right. 
-hmm. and they lose the child because of it as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's no question that he sinned. So the Talmud is arguing how. But remember what the Talmud is. The Talmud is telling us. Is it a debate over the level of the sin? Exactly. And does that even matter? It does matter. It matters for us because when we read the Torah and we read the Bible, we have a tendency of bringing it down to our level. So we imagine what someone that we are contemporary of ours or ourselves, Mm -hmm. and we read it in our terms. Mm -hmm. It's important not to read it in our terms. David himself was a prophet. A prophet is a level of scholarship and piety that we can can never sniff. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a much greater person than than us doing a sin that probably most of us wouldn't do. Mm -hmm. That's my my only point is is that it's very important not to read it on our level, and it's important. Yes, for David's level was a sin. Yeah. But not a crude sin the way you would seem to read it on a simplistic level. That's all I'm saying. Okay. And on a technical level, it wasn't a sin at all. Because she wasn't married. She was divorced. But the murder, Uriah was, Hiti the murder was, was the sin. Well, well, he wasn't, well he, was, he wasn't murdered. He was sent to the front lines and was, he died in battle. On. But he did it, but he did it knowing he would die. Sin. Like, he did that on purpose. purpose. It was intentional. But it remember, was intentional, exactly. No, yeah. not, it was really, no not everybody who's on the front lines yeah. does. No, but that's what it says. <laughs> that's true. Just, no, 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 no. But the Torah says specifically that that was his reasoning. And he does that so that he can marry Bathsheba because I agree that that would be the simplistic reading. The Talmud is coming to tell us, it's coming to instruct us to not read it simplistically. That's my only point. Of course, if you read another example, right? Ruvain and Billa. Remember that story? Yes. Ruvain and Billa? Mm-hmm. Yes. So story, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Rachel dies, mm-hmm. and Ruvain, the Takes son of Jacob, yeah. goes and sleeps with Billa. That's what the yeah. Torah writes about him. Yeah. And the Talmud also says, everyone who said that Ruvain sinned is nothing but mistaken. The same exact words. Kol ha'omer Ruvain chata, eno elatoet. Same words it uses. I think it's the same Talmudic piece that talks about that. Whoever said that David sinned is nothing but mistaken. Whoever said that Reuven sinned is nothing but mistaken. How so? Mm-hmm. What actually happened was that Reuven, um, that uh, Jacob, Jacob had four wives. The primary wife was Rachel. And therefore, his permanent domain, his permanent residence, kind of speak, his, his, like, uh, his bed was Rachel's tent. Rachel dies. Jacob decides to move his tent to Billah's tent, to move his, move his bed from, from, him, from Rachel's tent to Billah's tent, because Billah was kind of the, the maiden of, uh, of, of Rachel. Mm-hmm. And Reuben was upset about that because his, his mother Leah was a more primary wife. And, exactly. So he took Jacob's bed and moved it from Billah's mm-hmm. room to, uh, to Leah's, uh, Leah's room. Mm-hmm. That's what actually happened. Mm-hmm. What does the Torah write about them? Reuven slept with Bilah. Mm-hmm. That's what it writes. And what's the very next verse? And the sons of Jacob were 12. Mm-hmm. The Torah is hinting to us, even though I just told you a second ago, Reuven slept with Bilah, still the sons of Jacob were 12. Why? He, he is still equal to all mm-hmm. the sons of Jacob. It was 12, right? It wasn't like there was 11 and one of them was a sinner. The Torah is hinting to you, don't read it literally. Why? Reuven was a great man, and therefore Reuven intervened in any way in the sleeping patterns of his dad. For, for him, on his level, it will be equivalent for us as uh, sleeping with his father's wife. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the model, right? Mm-hmm. For us, 
for uh, for the great people, their sins are magnified. That they're, they're treated uh, uh, um, the way the Talmud says, "kuchotasayra," like the breadth of the breadth of here. Right? If there's any slight variation from total dedication, total scholarship, total piety, total perfection of character, it's blown up to astronomical proportions. Moses does perhaps one of the greatest miracles of all. The entire nation is thirsty. He hits the rock, and there's water for everyone. What does the Torah say about him? Moses has no faith in God. Moses, uh, Moses uh, defiled and desecrated God's name in public. Why? Because for Moses, on his level, a slight sin, per, for us, on our levels, we, we see nothing, we see, it's a, perhaps, maybe the greatest miracle. But on his level, because it was a slight variation, for, it's blown up, and, and for Moses, this is not belief, this is not faith. Well, I can see it all now. And that's the model that we use for David as well. Well, here's all these people starving to death, and they need water and all that. And Moses comes along and says, look, with this rock here, I'm going to get you water. Come on, Moses, what are you talking about? I mean, I can see it right now in there, all dissension and you disconnect me and all that sort of thing. So he says, yeah, right there's this rock right here. And he hits it. I thought he says, must I, uh, doesn't he say, must I get it for you? Yes, he does. Now, remember, this is not the first time Moses was instructed to hit the rock. He was instructed earlier to hit the rock. Mm -hmm. God tells him to speak to the rock. He speaks to the rock. He ends up being the wrong rock. And and Moses, Moses assumes that he wasn't really supposed to speak to it. He ends up hitting the wrong rock, and he makes a trickle, and then he hits it again, and then it just starts flowing. Remember, this is all documented in the Torah. This is a document that was given to the people that experienced the actual miracle. Um, it's a historical fact that is, un, uh, that is uh, incontrovertible by any measure of verification of historical events. Pretty remarkable, but for Moses, it's a sin. And Reuben, Reuben, yeah. He lost his. Uh, that's right. His, uh, that's right. That's right. For Reuben, it's a sin, and he loses his kingdom, his kingship, and he loses his his priesthood. He was the oldest. He was the firstborn. He should have been the king. He should have been the priest. He loses them both. Kingdom, he loses to Judah. Priesthood, he loses to to to, to Levi to Levi. And in the blessings, he's his thing. He, it says he's unstable as water. Exactly. Pachas right? You're 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 haste hasty like water. Okay. Can I ask you one? Yes. Sure, absolutely. David with Psalm, you know, Psalm 51, the famous psalm where he, you know, asked God to create in him a clean heart and mm-hmm. restore uh, the spirit within him and not to let it depart. It seems to me that whole psalm is Teshuva, that mm-hmm. he wants to be back. Yeah, well, David, his entire life, his entire life, he well, was he struggling with this. Uh, more, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. And what's interesting about that is that Ruvain as well, if you remember the, the episode of Ruvain uh, and Joseph. So Joseph, um, the brothers decide they want to kill him. Ruvain s- says, you know what, let's, let's put him in a holding cell. And then Judah says, let's sell him to the Midianites, right? And mm-hmm. the Midianites, to the travelers, mm-hmm. um, to the Ishmaelites, right? That's the story. And the Talmud says, where was Ruvain at when the time they sold him? So it says, Talmud says that Reuben was atoning for his sin. Mm-hmm. So yes, the great leaders, they understand that any, uh, any minor infraction is something you have to repent for. For us, we do major infractions. We say, eh, God, you know, me and God, we're tight, you know. <laughs> That's the, we're the exact opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Even our major infractions, we say, eh, not, no big deal. For the great leaders, like Moses, like Moses as well, Moses uh, prayed incessantly, tried to have it, have it absolved uh, and try to get land to Israel. 
you know, he was constantly atoning for that, for trying to uh, Reuben and also David as well. Yes, David as well. Even though on a technical level he did no sin, and on, on, on his why is that so funny, Bernie? You laugh. No, and then we also we. Uh, <laughs> no. Yes, as does David. That's right, but he was. Sounds like Clinton. Because you That's right. That is the reason. That's what it says. He hasn't got. And yes, but he's constantly trying to atone for that. David as well. David yes, like well, you mentioned the you know, the Psalms. Because he was in uh, what do you call him? Um, I forgot at the time, but he was. Uh, he didn't eat or he didn't fasted. He fasted mm-hmm. for the time the baby was sick until the baby yes yes but eventually uh, David would marry Bathsheba and their son would be Solomon and even though we look as we mentioned this last week we look at at this being somewhat of a scandal um, Solomon and you know the building of the temple and a you know a very important person in Jewish history is the son of David and Bathsheba and he assumes the leadership uh, the kingdom after David dies David dies at the age of 70 his son Solomon is a grand total of 12 years old and he becomes the king. And what's interesting about these 80 years of David and Solomon's reign is that these were the high point in Jewish life and Jewish history. They had full sovereignty. They had great kings. They had a united nation. And the Talmud even mentions that they didn't accept any converts during the times of David and Solomon. Interesting. Why? Because there was the fear of insincere conversion. You know, you see the Jewish people. They have it all. They have a United Nation. They have, uh, uh, they have tremendously uh, gifted, skilled leaders. They have prosperity. They have a land. They have everything. Everything going for them. So uh, who wouldn't want to join that? Yeah, so the head of Taf immigration law probably bought, uh, brought, built a fence along the way. Yeah. First the fence, and then we'll talk about amnesty, right? Uh, <laughs> Now, uh, so that that that's really wonderful, right? David buy, uh, David conquers Jerusalem. He buys purchases Temple Mount. He dies, and Solomon goes on the project of building Temple, the, the building the, the Temple that would last for more than four hundred years. This is literally the high point in Jewish life. He builds the Temple. They start. It becomes the center of of of, of Jewish focus of Jewish. Uh, they have the pilgrimage multiple times a year, and is a tremendous uh, uh, influence on the, the, the Jewish life from then till its destruction by the Babylonians 400 some odd years later. Solomon contributes to Jewish uh, to Jewish um, to the Bible. We have the book of, of Koheles, Ecclesiastes that we read a week and a half ago. We have the book of Shira Shirim, Song of Songs. We have multiple books written by, by Solomon. Solomon, the wisest of all men. We have the famous uh, Solomon episode with yeah. the with the you know the, there's a joke about that. With the baby, baby, right? The, oh, the, the joke right. is that the two mothers-in-law. Okay, it's just the opposite. <laughs> Either way, um, the, the the woman who says let's cut them, she's the real mother-in-law. That's the joke. Okay, that's so funny. And Solomon dies, and his son Rechavam he uh, takes over, and that's a very short-lived monarchy because that's when we have the split of the tribe of Judah 
uh, I'm sorry, the nation of Judah, the nation of Israel. We had about uh, about uh, I guess four five hundred years since Joshua. We've had our ups and downs. We've had all the uh, all the judges. We had Devorah. We had Samuel. We had Gideon. We had Samson. We had our skirmishes and our battles with the, these uh, seven nations. We have the Philistines. Eventually, we have the monarchy of Saul, short lived and tragic. David. Uh, we have the whole stories, all the stories of David, Book of Samuel, which read it. Very interesting. We meet Solomon. We have the temple. We're at the zenith of, of Jewish history. Samuel, uh, uh, Solomon dies. His son Rechavim takes over. He makes a few critical errors at the beginning of his, uh, of his, of his, um, of his monarchy, of his leadership. Uh, we have tension, growing tension between the nation, between the different tribes um, of the north and the tribes of the south. Why? Because you have the kingdom the capital in Jerusalem, you have the temple in Jerusalem, you have basically the center point of, the epicenter of the Jewish life is in Jerusalem, but you have all those, na- you have all those tribes up north and they kind of feel left out. Mm-hmm. And then he makes a few critical mistakes. He, he raises taxes. We know that that makes people revolt more than anything else. Um, he, so he raises taxes and also he goes and has his inauguration in the northern kingdom. And he follows the advice of the young people who are the more the whippersnappers, and they say, you got to whip them into shape. These are your subjects. You're the king. you got to go show a sign of, of strength and force. Go establish your kingdom in the north. Raise the taxes. Beat them down. And eventually they secede. And from then, uh, for the next 250 years, basically, we have two Israels. We have splintered Israel. We have the kingdom of Israel in the north, called the kingdom of Israel, and we have the kingdom of Israel in the south, called the kingdom of Judah. And what happens is that you have two kingdoms heading in radically different directions. You have in the south the kingdom of Judah with the temple that was uh, forever, um, for the next, I think they had about 20 or 25 kings um, from uh, the times of Solomon till the uh, till the uh, destruction of the of the uh, of the first temple, and you have the kingdom of the north that had nineteen kings, and they went astray in a major way. Every single one of these nineteen kings would be evil in some capacity, would adopt idolatry in some capacity. They built temples for idolatry. There are like for the story of Elijah Mount Carmel, you know that story. Elijah you know, comes to try to uh, make uh, amends or try to change the trajectory of the people in the north. He has this standoff with the um, priests of, of the idolatry, and he makes this major impact. Everyone's all impressed. And then you have this, uh, the, the queen, uh, Jezebel, Jezebel, and she says, uh, Elijah, I'm going to kill you if you don't get out. And the influence uh, of the impact of his, of his, uh, of his display is mitigated. You have people in the name of Achav. Yeravam was a big character. He was; these were all kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the character and the mo- and the morality and the behavior of the kingdom of Israel descended and deteriorated until the they were destroyed. More precisely, they were scattered by the Assyrians. So now, remember, it's one, one of the important elements of learning Jewish history is the idea of Jewish history not happening in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. 
Right. There's always going to be the reflection of the way the Jewish people are living and the internal influences of the Jewish people and challenges as well for the Jewish people. But you have the, the rest of the greater world out there and you have the, uh, the, the small little country of Israel, which more precisely the, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and they're sandwiched between the Egyptians from the south, the Egyptian empire that, that, that ascended in the south, and the Assyrian empire in the north. And in the year, this is uh, the years here, I haven't been doing, the year 796 is when we have, before the Common Era, we have Israel splitting into two kingdoms. In the year 555, we have the Assyrians overrunning the northern kingdom of Israel, and we have the scattering of the ten tribes, uh, taking them uh, outside of Israel and sending them elsewhere. The Assyrians, they had a very interesting method of conquering and you conquer a nation, so you could subject them to your rule and to your culture and to your way of life and to paying taxes. But there's always the risk of them regrouping and then rebelling. So what they would do is they would they would uh, they would make this uh, little uh, musical chairs and take nations and put them in exile, spread them out. Because when you're out of your scatter them, you're out of your land, you're out of your familiar territory, you're you're new, you don't know the place, right? you're much like you're much more of a docile subject, much less likely to rebel. And therefore he takes the 10, 10, 10 tribes, 10 northern tribes, and he sends them uh, elsewhere. Now we always know these mythical, legend, legendary 10 tribes, they appear everywhere. <laughs> they appear in Africa, they appear in, uh, in Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, all these exotic places, Nepal, India. We have America. groups <laughs> groups claiming to be descendants of these 10 tribes. The Bnei Moshe, the Bnei Menashe, all these various people who claim to be, and they have these traditions, and they like candles on Friday nights, and they have uh, they wear these fringes at the edges of their clothing that resemble tzitzis in some capacity. Either way, in the Talmud, there's a debate whether or not these ten tribes are coming back. Uh, whether or not they're coming back is, 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 is a question of debate. Either way, what actually happened was a great, great tragedy where, where, where we had a united kingdom we had a united monarchy. We had a singular temple in Jerusalem, and with we're done here. Yeah. And also, we'll just quickly finish up here. And so much promise, and such tragic consequences, where you have a deterioration over a couple hundred years, and eventually a scattering of the ten tribes. Some members of these ten tribes actually migrated south and joined the kingdom of Judah. But the vast majority of them are lost to history, and we probably will never hear about that, hear them again. There's a debate whether they come back or not. I have a question before you move on. Where's the Sanhedrin in all of this? Sanhedrin is always in the temple, so they're always. Where are they during the course of all of this history? When, they so they have, they now, have. Where, when these kings are, are clearly idolatrous, oh. why, are, why is the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin is part of the South. Sanhedrin is in the temple. Sanhedrin was situated in the temple, and the Sanhedrin was adjudicating the Jewish people. They're the Supreme Court. Uh, they give the law. But it's a different the, country now. It's a different country, exactly. It's a different country and different rules. So they, in the north, they established temples for uh, idolatry. And they, you know, they forbade the members of their constituents from joining the pilgrimage to the temple. So basically, they severed the link between the yeah, like you said, there was a uh, they, they, there was a there was boundaries, and they you know they severed the link between the Jewish people in the north from the Jewish center in the south, and that just spiraled out of control, and they they're gone. 
So those ten tribes, how populous were they? Was it like uh, like ninety percent uh, of total Jewish population? I don't know the exact uh, the exact. Yeah. We, you would so assume I'm saying was more. Yes, you would assume. I don't know. I, I don't know if we know the exact number, but I would assume it was uh, even larger than because because the tribes in the south was just Judah and Benjamin. Why half of Benjamin? It says half of Benjamin. Half of Benjamin was where? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so there you go. And this is also the period of time where the prophets are talking, right? Yes, yes. Like so we the prophets sp- of the Torah, those books are tied into that timeline. Exactly, exactly. So, and, and the prophets are always trying to influence uh, the leaders of yeah, Israel in the north. We have till 12. Okay, well, we're not going to go till 12, but we'll just finish, just wrap up a little bit. The uh, the Assyrians, that's that group that, I forget their name now, the ones that uh, ISIS was killing. The, uh, Assyrian? the Assyrian? What's left of the Assyrians? No, 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 they're long gone. Well, we, we, in, in, in ancient, in ancient, in ancient history, we have these, these mega empires and very high turnover rate. A couple hundred years here, a couple hundred years there, and you're done. So, like, we have, like, the Egyptians, and then we have the Assyrians, we're going to meet the Babylonians, we're going to meet the Persians, we're going to meet the... the province of Assyrians, and then they sort of switch. They took over we're going to have, like we said, so we have the Assyrians to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks, and the Greeks split into the Macedonians and the 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 the, the, the uh, Ptolemian kingdom, the Assyrian Greek, means the three three offshoots of what, the, what, what was the United uh, Greek Empire under uh, Alexander the Great. We have the Romans, obviously, the Byzantines, etc. Um, so, the Northern Kingdoms, like we say, the great, great tragedy, they uh, always had these kings um, uh, that started off as trying to kind of you know, make amends and trying to reunite the Jewish people. And, you know, they had some kings with great potential. In fact, uh, Yeruvah ben Nevat, he was one of the famous ones. He, he was a great scholar and a great leader, and he could have perhaps, uh, could have perhaps brought the nation of Israel back to Judaism. Uh, he kind of failed miserably. Uh, the Midrash tells us, the Talmud tells us this episode of, he was a prophet. So he was, you know, he's an incredible man, incredible, incredible potential. And then God tells him, says, listen, just bring the nation of Israel back, like, uh, uh, repudiate idolatry, come back, reunite the Jewish people, right? Stop leading the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel astray. And then you and I and the son of Yeshai and David will stroll along together in the Garden of Eden. So he says, well, who's first, me or David? He says, David, us. Oh, okay, not, not interested. He had a few uh, uh, Achilles heels, and he kind of struck out in his opportunity to reunite the Jewish people. Eventually, they, on a spiritual, we always looked at Jewish history uh, with the physical um, manifestation of spiritual realities. So we have a nation of Israel in the north that is so steeped in idolatry and so far from tradition and strained further and further away that once they reach the point of no return on a spiritual sense, then they're overrun in the physical. The manifestation of that is kind of just, that's just filling in the blanks. Uh, but it was right, the writing is right on the wall from the spiritual sense and the physical manifestation of that spiritual reality is just, you know, uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. That was a really, but once the spiritual level already descends to a point of no return, it's just a matter of time before the, that that is manifest in the physical reality. 
So they are overrun, and the nation of Israel is going to be gone, gone for history, and for not, for another hundred fifty years, some uh, the nation of Judah is gonna is gonna uh, uh, continue. There's going to be efforts, uh, most famously that of Sancheriv, a great uh, Assyrian general who's going to try to take on Jerusalem. He's going to be unsuccessful, and what they tried to do was going to be accomplished by the Babylonians. The Babylonians become the major influence, and they ultimately destroy the temple. They destroy the temple. A few major important items happen. We'll finish with this, with the destruction of of the first temple. A few major items happen uh, before the destruction of the temple that are going to be uh, very significant to what's going to happen to the Jewish people afterwards. But what's very important here is that we're going to see a life, a Jewish life, with prophets and a temple that over the next couple of hundred years after the destruction of the first temple or leading up to the destruction of the first temple and going through the exile and the rebuilding of the second temple, um, there's going to be a few major items that are going to be, there's going to be a major transition, one of the major, major shifts in Jewish life. You have a temple, you have pilgrimages, you have the temple being the center of Jewish life. You also have prophets. The prophets contribute tremendously to being the leaders of the Jewish people. Over the next couple of years, you're going to have the temple being destroyed. You're going to have the Jewish center of life being sent east to Babylon. You're going to have the rebuilding of the second temple. The second temple paled in comparison uh, to the first temple. The, uh, some of the uh, vessels of the first temple are not going to be present, like the Ark of the Covenant. Show, we don't have that in the second temple. Uh, we have a lot of miracles that were uh, present in the first temple don't appear in the second temple. There's going to be corruption in the second temple that we didn't have in the first temple. And also, the majority of the Jewish people are not going to be living in Israel, and the Jews will transition from prophecy to becoming what they are today, a non-profit organization. So, they got their uh, 501, 501, yeah, the 501c3 status is going to happen then. And remember, when you don't have no, profit, no learned didn't do anything. Uh, she did, she lost the emails, yeah. <laughs> I lost the emails. She's Jewish, so she's Jewish. Is that right? Yeah, she's Jewish. Okay, of course. Uh, unsurprisingly. Either way, when the nation is going to be facing with these challenges, the very existence of the Jewish people is going to be in flux. So a lot of uh, a lot of a major. Uh, this is a very pivotal time in Jewish life because you're going to have this major transition of a, of a temple, uh, of, of a Jewish people with a temple in Israel with prophets transitioning to a uh, multiple communities, a community in Israel and a community in Babylon. No temple, or at least not a significant temple, no prophecy, and uh, the role of a Sanhedrin is going to be expanded in a great way. The before, so 12 years before the destruction of the first temple, so it happened incrementally, you're going to have uh, uh, a migration, more precisely not migration, but a exile to Babylon. And the Babylonians are going to take the best and the brightest, 10,000 of the best and the brightest, uh, headed by the prophet Ezekiel, and take them and bring them to Babylon. This tremendously weakened, it weakened the Jewish community in Israel. But the Talmud says this is one of the great uh, miracles in disguise. It was a a miracle in disguise for the Jewish people. Because imagine you're in Israel. You have a temple. You don't see the writing at all. You don't know that within a decade and a half, the temple's been destroyed. Everyone's going to be heading out to Babylon. 
You don't know that, but the Umani does know that. And the Umani prepared the seeds of the community in Babylon by sending a contingent of 10,000 of the best and brightest mm-hmm. to Babylon to establish a community that will thrive for 2,500 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, where this did not happen is in America. For example, in America, we had the uh, Jewish uh, emigration to the United States began in earnest in the 1880s with the Russian and the German emigration to the United States. And they came to America, and what they find? A land barren of Jewish institutions. There were no yeshivas, there was no kosher facilities, no shuls, no nothing. And what happened? Nothing short of the greatest assimilation in Jewish history. That's what happened. In Babylon, what happened was, when the Jewish people, ultimately the temple was destroyed by the lights of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the English name is Nebu, I don't know, the, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the Hebrew, and it was right, and they destroy the temple. The Jewish people are taken in shackles and brought east to Babylon. They come there, and they already see a thriving Jewish community. There's shuls, and there's delis, and there's bagels, and there's, and there's all the institutions already there, and the Jewish people will almost not miss a beat in their spiritual lives because they're going to have great leaders in Babylon. But no temple, and they're going to have to adjust to this life without a temple, and the prophecy, or the era of prophecy is already waning. Mm-hmm. We're going to have 70 years of exile in Babylon. There's still mm-hmm. some Jews left in Israel, but the vast majority of Jews are in Babylon. It's going to be a stable time period. We're going to see a turnover of uh, the Persian Empire overrunning the, uh, the Babylonian Empire, and we're going to have the time period of Purim where the years given is the year 355 before the Common Era. Before that, we're going to have the uh, the emperor, the Persian emperor whose name was, I think, Cyrus. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Cyrus? Yeah, and he lets them go back. He's going to let them go back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Uh, Zerubbabel, fell by the name of Zerubbabel, who may or may not be Ezra, according to the Talmud, maybe Ezra, maybe Nehemiah, there's a whole debate who he is. Maybe he's an, a, 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 just, a, we know nothing about him other than he led the contingency of 42,000 people heading back to Israel. They start building the temple, but remember, the, the, the uh, Samaritans, Samaritans are now living in Israel. Uh, they, they're the ones who came over when, 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 when the Assyrians did that merry-go-round and they took the nation of the nations of the north of Israel, the ten tribes, and sent them out. They brought a group of people called the Samaritans or the Kusim. Uh, they brought them in their stead. They may or may not have converted. The Talmud always has this debate what to do with the Kusim because these they may have converted, but it may have been an insincere conversion. There's a whole debate: are they true converts or are they only converts of lions? So what that means is either that there were actual lions there that just freaked them out and they converted, or lions, when you're, when you're scared of a lion, they, they, they only convert out of fear, so to speak. They want to be accepted amongst the Jews, so they convert out of fear. So they, these people, these Samaritans, have a, like a half status where you have to treat them as Jews, but you're not so sure if they're, they're super sincere in the conversion. So they, they're, 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 uh, the Talmud always talks about Kusim. What do you do? It's up, it's up in the air. You don't know. They're Jewish and they're not Jewish. We don't know. But they're there and they're going to be a major thorn on the side of the Jewish people. Jewish people are going to get back. They're going to have a mandate to build a temple from Cyrus in the year 370. They go. They start building the temple in earnest. And the Kusim say, no, no, we want to be part of it. Initially, the Kusim, the Samaritans are on board. Eventually, they get they feel jilted. So they go and they rebel and they, they, they fight. And they, they, they eventually convince the uh, the permission they have the permission uh, to, uh, to build a temple revoked construction of the temple is halted 
temporarily. Uh, back in, 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 in Babylon, you have the Persian uh, episode with Ahasuerus and Haman, and, and the book of, of Esther tells the whole story in great detail. Mordechai, a great leader. Uh, miraculous events. The Jewish people are spared. And eventually, in about the year 350 or 352, a construction on the te- Second Temple is resumed. And it is rebuilt. A couple of years later, Ezra, great leader Ezra, comes back with, uh, uh, with uh, a great contingency of people with him. A couple of years later, he's followed by Nehemiah. And from this point on, we're going to have two uh, independent communities of Jewish life, one in Israel with the temple, and a much larger, a much larger contingency of Jews in Babylon that are that that is going to be coexisting, uh, uh, independent. Even though there was lots of uh, of, of flow of, of people and ideas. Uh, between the two, but two coexisting independent Jewish communities that are going to exist for a very, very long time. In fact, the, the, the community in Babylon that existed uh, it, it was around till modern times, till the you know till contemporary times. The Jews living in Iraq and uh, and um, in Baghdad and not well, not quite Syria, but further further east uh, till modern times. And they they built these tremendous yeshivas like Sura and Pupadisa, these major institutions that had thousands upon thousands of students that were around for a thousand years. Like massive, massive institutions, or even more than a thousand years. And, and Saddam kicked them all out, didn't he? Yeah, well, in the, in the 1950s, a lot of them came to Israel. A lot of them came to Israel. And there was this, uh, I read this book, it's Kurdish, Kurdish Jews. There were like 30,000 Kurdish Jews who uh, spoke Aramaic. Yeah, well, that that was the language of the land. That's yeah. what the the, the 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 Talmud that was they written. That was Talmud that was written about five about a thousand years after the period that we're up to right now, was written in, in Aramaic because it that was the language of the land, in in Babylon. There was a book, recent book where the kid was checking his his history of uh, <laughs> his father became a professor of uh, of Aramaic at UCLA. He was a Kurdish Jew that went. Yeah, to, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, yeah, but till today, so, till today we, well, I'm saying we, we read the Talmud, we speak Aramaic, we have a, you know, we could actually watch uh, the Passion of the Christ without subtitles. Uh, well, <laughs> that's a joke. That was a joke. Let it go. I'm just trying to have a moment of too far. Too far. Okay, moment of levity. It's been the day of yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so what, what I just want to leave off with this, and I'll get to your question, David. Uh, I want to leave off with this moment of great transition. Uh, we have uh, two, two uh, uh, interdependent uh, but also independent communities, a much larger one. And you think about it, it's like remarkable. The Jews were able to establish or reestablish sovereignty in Israel, or sovereignty, I don't know about sovereignty, but at least a community in Israel, and the vast majority of Jews opted to stay in Babylon, which is eerily similar to what happened in Israel. You know, we were allowed to go back to Israel, and history will judge us for saying, why were there so many Jews who stayed in Houston, and New York, and in England, and everywhere? Like, what were they thinking? Like, from a historical perspective, we're going to be judged the same way that we judge today all the people in Babylon. Like, you finally were able to go back to Israel. Why did you not choose to go back? And the answer was very similar, because it was very different in in, in Babylon. 
they had freedom uh, they had it wasn't quite, quite a golden age but it was a time where they had stability stability they had freedom the, they, the, the Babylonians and the Persians and uh, uh, were kind of said you know live and let live we, we let you, you could develop your institutions they had formal recognition uh, political recognition uh, with the race Calusa who was kind of the head of diaspora and it was really good for them and only like about 5% of them actually went back with, with, with Ezra and uh, reestablished that second temple in a second uh, commonwealth in Israel. What was that word? Commonwealth. Commonwealth. Okay. Yeah. Not Hebrew. David. Oh no, that comes much later. <laughs> <laughs> David. Uh, just so you, since you mentioned the temples, um, didn't I read some? I, I read somewhere there was there was there was a practice at some point of animal sacrifice in the temples. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But when and why did that practice end? It ended when the temple was destroyed. The, the first one, second temple. Second. The second one. Yes, okay. yes. Animal sacrifice was a uh, um, was a was that was what they did in the temple. And if it were rebuilt, they'd do it again. So that's actually a debate. Okay. It's a debate. Maimonides says that they that perhaps they won't, mm-hmm. um, but most likely they will. Yeah. That's my yeah, like question. Is where do you stand on it. the temple being built? The third time. Oh yeah, it's gonna happen. So we're halfway there, you know. Like if if someone told you 100 years ago that we'd actually have Jerusalem, we'd be on the doorstep of the temple, people on the Temple Mount, people wouldn't believe you. Mm-hmm. We're already halfway there, you know. We already have Israel. We have six million Jews in Israel. We have control over Israel. It's like that. It can happen. Mm-hmm. Does it have to be Temple Mount? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's gonna be Temple Mount. It's gonna be Temple Mount. Temple Mount. We're gonna do some some excavation. It's not a big deal. It's and happened it's before. What's the big deal? You take a you take a, uh, a bulldozer. You lift up you you lift up the uh, the shrine. Now, uh-huh. in, remember in Jewish in, in Jewish life in Jewish philosophy, we're very thankful to the shrine because it's, it's protected by the Muslims. Yeah. Do a much better job than the modern Israelis would do in, in protecting the sanctity uh, and the holiness of these of these spaces. Yeah. And you know, Jews and Allah go there. Jews and Allah go to Temple Mount. So if you ever go visit Israel, don't go there because as Jews, you're not allowed to go there. Uh, yet in ritual impurity because the site maintains its, its holiness. Mm-hmm. So yes, we're very thankful to the Muslims. But remember, the, 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 there was such doubt as to whether or not we'd ever we'd ever conquer Jerusalem or the old city or any you know the Golan Heights or the Sinai. We have it all now, you know. So we're there. All we need is just one minor provocation. And but no, we look at when we're spiritual, when we're spiritually ready for rebuilding the temple. Then all the physical things, yeah, all the physical uh, items will just will line up. But we see it's not so hard to see it, you know. In 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 about three minutes, the Israeli army can uh, clear away the Temple Mount and, and start construction. In three about three minutes. So physically, we're very capable. Spiritually, when we're ready, we'll do it. The cornerstone's already been laid. I'm telling What do you mean? Yeah. For the third temple. Yeah. Well, there's some there's some there's some fanatics that want to jump the gun. You mean the Temple Institute? No, not the temples. No, people. No, I'm group? talking. Well, there's these. There's always these groups that say, "Let's let's just do it. Let's just bulldoze them." It's it's mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, it's uh, impractical. It's imprudent. It's uh, you know, don't jump, don't jump the gun. Uh, when we're spiritually ready for it, we'll know we'll we'll know when the time has come. Mm-hmm. But we're there. Uh, it's not. You don't have to really jump through any loopholes. To uh, jump through major hoops to see how physically it's going to happen. But yes, absolutely. Of course, we're going to rebuild the temple. It's been the yearning for the Jewish people for, for millennia. Well, we're almost there. It's incredible. That's the idea of Mashiach. Yes, absolutely. Was there a process for uh, verification of the prophet 
mean, yeah, yes, yes, like, yes. You know, yes. We'll, we'll, maybe we could talk about this some other time. But Maimonides gives us the the instructions of how a prophet gets prophecy, and 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 what he does, and how he proves himself, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So if you or I were to go into the temple or to go into the court and say we're prophets, they would just they would just put us put us away. Well, and even further back, it's talked about in Deuteronomy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like, instruction how we. It's like I love Maimonides, and that's wonderful, but I don't care so much. Like he gave wonderful wisdom. Yeah, well, he organized it. Thousands of years after, of course, he but he he organizes for us. What Dan is going to be, and what I feel like Dan's looking for is where does it say in contemporary time, like basically these people that we've canonized as prophets and taken their books into. The Tanakh. Yeah. What were the standards for judging those guys? And Maimonides, though valuable, is not. Okay, so but okay, but Moses is called Moses in Deuteronomy. Moses is called the father of prophets. Moses called the father of prophets. All those that preceded him and all those that came afterwards. Yeah. We mentioned this, I think, last time. Moses is a verified prophet. So therefore, Moses tells us that Abraham is a prophet. We believe it not because of Abraham, because of Moses. Moses also lays down the requirements, the criteria for. Future prophets. So all future prophets are kind of descendants of, of, so to speak, spiritual descendants of Moses because Moses told us how to verify and how to clarify what they are. But yeah. Maimonides organizes right. them. Exactly. It's a better statement, but yes, if you're looking them. to line up chronology. You want so to that's that. So I, I think that what I would really, really love is that we could have, I know we, we only slated two sessions on history. I think it's very important. We kind of are able to touch on a lot of uh, things. Maybe we could, uh, uh, we'll, we'll, go, we'll try to find a part three. Okay. Yeah. Um, really yes, very interesting. Yeah, As usual. Anybody interested in that? Cur- the, the name of the book is My Father's Paradise. And uh, mm-hmm. Torch Annual Gala. I, I really, really want everyone to attend. It'll be a uh, tremendous support for us as an organization, but also for me personally. So. And let me know if you're going so we can coordinate the... Yes, yeah, we want, I want to have a... Th- if I can sit with people Yes, I know. yes. Yeah. There's going to be David's three... Yes, we're going to... I want to have two or at least two, but hopefully even three TBT tables. We're going to show them. Wow. Humble power. Okay. <laughs> you know, the Turks did the same it thing. It is... Wednesday night. Oh, yeah. Went out of took over. We took the desert tribes and put them down in Samson. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. What a mess, though. Yeah, it's a mess, but it's great for the conqueror, you know? Yeah.